Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thanks for hanging out. Today, my guest on this episode is Johannes Ringen, who is a Norwegian-based composer who is well-known for his work on Avengers, Age of Ultron, Furious 7, and he's also recently worked on the score for a new Netflix film called Troll. And in this episode, we talk all about writing film scores and what work goes into that. And it's really interesting because Johannes does a great job of detailing what really goes on behind the scenes and how flexible you need to be throughout the entire process. There's a lot of different cooks in the kitchen, and that can really impact the way you write your music, but also the way that other people manipulate your music after you've written it. So there's a lot of trusting other people and a lot of flexibility that you have to have with your music, and also just accepting the fact that your music can change quite a bit throughout the entire process. So I think it's really important to hear about this stuff in this episode because I know a lot of people just tend to get very fixated on their music and very married to their ideas. But when you're flexible, great things can happen. And you'll hear all about that in this episode here. And I think Johannes just shares a lot of great advice for how to deal with that flexibility. But also we get into other topics about, you know, just composing and creating emotion through your music and dealing with things like writer's block and just how to navigate creativity, especially when you're dealing with things like deadlines or large bodies of music that you have to write. It can be a lot of pressure. So uh, Johanna shares a lot of great tips on how to deal with that pressure and how to work within constraints and, you know, how to really maximize your creativity. So I think that if you're someone who finds yourself frequently feeling like you've got writer's block or you're just in a bit of a creative rut right now, I think a lot of the advice that Johanna shares here is going to be very helpful for you. So with that said, let's just jump right into this interview. Johannes Ringen, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background and, and all the cool stuff you're working on these days, can you give us that story and how you got into music and ultimately to where you are today? Sure. Um, you know, I, uh, we had a piano at home. That's how it started. And I got into playing bands and uh, guitar and bass and typical band instruments. And, um, you know, I, I come from a little place uh, called Lilyhammer. Uh, some of you might be familiar. There was a Netflix show uh, with the same name. Um, and... Uh, just a little fun fact: the, the the guitar player from the Bruce Springsteen's guitar player, uh, Little Steven, he was uh, was one of the main actors in that show. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, Lilyhammer, it's it's all about sports. So uh, it took a while for me to sort of uh, believe that music was something I could uh, work on. And um, uh, as I understand, a lot of your listeners are uh, the typical um, home studio producers, and uh, that's what I was doing for a long time. And uh, a turning point was uh, a friend of mine who um, was going to film school. He was doing a student project, and he was asking me because uh, he knew that I was making music. And... uh, that was a really big turning point because um, I've always um, been playing in bands, but I didn't like performing that much. 
I really felt at home being in a studio with less pressure and that sort of environment. And uh, I'm not particularly good with lyrics. So uh, everything sort of clicked when I was doing this uh, short film. Uh, and, and it did pretty well too, like for what it was. So uh, then I just uh, started reaching out to people, uh, doing short films, commercials, ads, everything that just uh, I could get my hands on. And uh, then I realized that if I really wanted to do this, it would be a wise move to go to L.A. So we moved to L.A. and I studied film scoring at the USC, uh, which led to a um, number of great opportunities for me. Um, obviously, L.A. is the place to be if you want to do films. At least like uh, now you, you can pretty much be everywhere. Uh, things have changed so in so many ways in that regard. So, uh, yeah, uh, so it's, it's been like a gradual process. Uh, the, the latest film that I, I did is, um, it's, it's called Troll, which is out on Netflix now, which is, has been doing really great. Um, so yeah, I just feel really unfortunate to sort of like that I finally found a path so I could make a living like doing what I love to do. That's amazing. Yeah. I love how you were able to kind of observe that. You know, you didn't want to be performing. You, your strength wasn't in writing lyrics. So it's like, okay, well, how do I make instrumental music and do it in the studio? Like, you know, it, it definitely makes sense. And composing would be a great avenue for you there because it, it certainly uh, plays to your strengths, I guess, you know? Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when you were working on that first project that, that your friend gave you, like up to, up to that point, were you working on making score music at that point or were you kind of just doing your own like rock music or something like that yeah n not score at all i i don't think i even know that uh, movies had music it was <laughs> at that level <laughs> so i did all sorts of music uh, and that that's the thing like if if you uh, live in a small city that like i did like you you the, the the music community is so small so you you're into a little bit of everything you're playing a little bit of jazz. You're playing a little bit of uh, rock, and uh, later that has become like a really good thing because film scoring is so much about uh, telling stories, and to have a lot of like experiences to draw from has been uh, been great. So I've I've done it all. I've been recording my friends' bands, uh, my own bands, and so on and so forth. That's amazing. Yeah, I think you bring up a really good point there of diversifying your musical tastes. Because, you know, it's not just, especially when you're in scoring, it's, it's, you know, you may come from like a rock background, but you're not making a lot of rock music necessarily for scores. So um, you definitely have to diversify your, your musical tastes and, and your influences. So what was that process like for you to, to like learn these different styles of music and how to write them? Because, you know, some people are just very like one-minded where they can only write a rock song. You know, but but now you're in a position where someone's like, "Hey, I need this classical theme, or I need this electronic theme, or whatever." So, you know, how did you go about learning these different styles of music so that you could adapt to to whatever you needed to do? This this is the best part, I think, of of film scoring because uh, I was playing in, in bands and I was touring and uh, doing that thing for a while and. Um, you know, I got a little tired of playing the same songs over and over. 
And I found it so much fun to, you know, making a film score, it can take anywhere between five weeks and uh, and one year. And, and then you're sort of like, you're done with this sort of like thing. I think everyone tries to make something unique for every project. Mm-hmm. That's so nice uh, to um, be able to... Uh, I'm having so much fun with it. And uh, at the end of the project, I can do... Well, so for instance, Troll that I I was just doing, it's, uh, it's a fairly like symphonic score. We recorded a big symf- symphony orchestra. And, uh, and then I'm the other day, I'm doing something which requires just uh, some band instruments. Um, so... Uh, I guess <laughs> that that was a very long answer to a short question. I I guess the answer is just like you learn along the way. Gotcha. As long as you're just interested in it, and uh, I, I'm sure everyone listening to this, we we love music. So uh, yeah. Yeah. What about instrumental, uh, like instrumentation wise? Because you said you were a guitar player to start, you know, and now you're writing symphonies and stuff like that. So. Did you have to? Do you feel like you had to learn a lot of other instruments along the way, or like learn how to play other instruments, or was it kind of just something like the musical theory allows you to just apply it to a lot of different styles? You know, I'm I'm fairly good with computers, uh, so I've learned a lot through computers uh, for good and for bad, uh, because there are obviously a lot of pitfalls. Uh, musicians don't behave like a computer. <laughs> that's that's for sure. But um, with all these tools today, like um, I don't think anyone would uh, throw a symphony orchestra at someone and just say, "Hey, uh, let's just uh, just do this." Uh, we know that it costs hundreds of thousands or uh, <laughs> tens, tens of thousands. Uh, so, so that's that's a really good sort of uh, training ground for um, for everything. So, um, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I would assume that MIDI plays a really big part of your process, right? Yeah, the the thing with, with film scoring is um, the director uh, and the producer they have the the final decision on everything. So uh, they obviously they don't know how to score read. So you can't you can't hand them the score and see guys uh, take a listen to this. Uh, well, uh, there's no music here, so. Um, what we do is we make a mock-up. That's a very uh, that's a thing in film scoring, which is basically a sort of a computer version of the final product. So the director he can say, uh, "Yeah, I like this, but can we have a little more energy here? Can we have a little more percussion here? Uh, can we do th- uh, there's too much here?" Uh, so we have this sort of like common ground to go off from, and then when everything is um, is uh, said and done, we go and record it, and this. This this has changed a lot over the years. If we go thirty years back, uh, the when they got to the scoring stage, they uh, it could be that the director, the only thing the director uh, had listened to was the composer sitting at the piano. So that's kind of hard to imagine today. Uh, if you go to go on YouTube, you, you there's a lot of things. John Williams is playing his themes and. Uh, you know, like hearing something on the piano and hearing something with a full orchestra, it's so different. It has obviously also cut down the time spent recording a whole lot. It it could be that they were booking uh, a studio for like for weeks when they did movies before, but now 
everything is so sort of like said and done before we re-record it. So we, we, we just basically do what we all already have. There, there's no changes happening at the scoring stage. Yeah, I think that's really interesting that you're, like you said, you're kind of making the like the fake version of the final product with all the right. all the programmed instruments and then yeah you get into it and it's like okay well, let's just rec- like let's, let's replicate this in the studio and use real instruments and go from there I, I think that that's very fascinating and it definitely makes sense that that's the way it would be now because you have so much flexibility with rearranging things or eliminating tracks and adding things in in the, in the box and you know in, in the right. computer so um it kind of makes sense that yeah you would just map out everything ahead of time and just make it super simple for, you know, when it actually comes time to record and, and save some money ultimately, I guess, in the end, right? Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to know though. So I'm assuming, you know, you're not just, you're not just giving someone a piano track, like, like you said, like you're, you know, you're, you are making like string elements and pad elements and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, a lot of software instruments don't always sound the most realistic, so do you have any tips for getting more of a realistic sound out of virtual instruments so that it sounds believable? Oh, wow. That's a big question. <laughs> and I think, first of all, there, there's so many good sample libraries today. Uh, so you could get some amazing mockups. Uh, but you really have to breathe life into the, to the mockup. So you have to sort of like make sure that they, there are some dynamics in there that string player he would never like play exactly the same he would like phrase things uh and it would it could, would get louder and it get more soft and so on and so forth and a lot of this i think has to do with writing you have to um know a little bit about how a symphony orchestra works if you just if you if you just do a, a pad sound like like on a synth that's a that's a good start uh, if, if you think about you have like f- five voices that could be a string orchestra and uh, if you just go and play all those voices in individually uh, and breathe some life into it uh, like with volume and dynamics and um, yeah it can really help yeah I, I would assume that you kind of have to sort of study how the musicians themselves play. Because like you said, like, I mean, it may, might be obvious that, you know, not a, most musicians can't play every single note at the exact same velocity no. all the time, right? It's just unrealistic. <laughs> There's a human element to how we perform things. But, For sure. But I think that it... So, that, so that's what, what we're doing. We're sort of like, we're, we're trying to fake the human element into the, the sample, the synthetic world, yeah. Of course. So are you then like manually going in and adjusting all your velocities after the fact? Or like, what does that process look like for you to, to make it? Uh, normally, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big improviser. That's my, my process. I, I like to sit with, uh, with the keyboard and play things in and uh, see if something comes out. And uh, then I go in and, uh, okay, uh, that was cool chord progression. How do I break this into uh, violins, uh, violas, cello, and basses? And um, so um, maybe I add some brass uh, elements if that's appropriate for the track. Um, Depending on what sound world it is, I might add some electronic elements, which is very popular these days. Uh, and uh, hopefully at the end of the day I have something the director likes and uh, see eye to eye to um, so yeah and, and then you repeat this for 30 cues in the movie and then you're <laughs> done 
<laughs> I imagine that, you know, it, it would be, it's a lot of work to come up with an idea and then, you know, make all these different voicings and have all the different instrumentation and then send it off to a director and be like, hey, what do you think of this? And hope that they like it so you don't have to undo all of that hard work that you, you know, spend so much time on. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and this this is a thing because... Uh, when you're scoring movies, there, there's always this, it's always time pressure. So how much time do I put into making this uh, mock-up perfect? Because like at the end of the day, everything's going to get replaced. So it has to be good enough so that the director will listen to it and think, oh, well, this is, this is sounding great. Uh, but you, you, you don't, there's simply not enough time to to sit there and tweak every little, little detail that you would want to to tweak so so it's a balancing act to sort of like figure out what um how much energy to put into it yeah that, that's a really interesting point too because i know a lot of people listening to this really suffer from that perfectionism mindset that you know everything needs to be 100 percent perfect sounding before they give it to their clients because you know they, there's this fear that if it's not 100 percent perfect that it's going to get rejected and, you know, people are going to think poorly of them. But there really is that there has to be that kind of balance, especially in your case where you know that this is going to just get replaced. Like, you know, there has to be that, that struggle of how perfect do I present it to make it sound believable versus, you know, just giving something that's a decent enough mock-up. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, it, it's always tempting to go uh, and... Uh, and say this is gonna be awesome if we we get it recorded, but it's if you try to sell it too hard, uh, that can really that can go really hit you in the back at the end of the day. Yeah, it makes sense. So, what does the process of composing typically look like for you? Like, where do you start with a project when someone when someone says, "Hey, I got this film," you know, go for it. What do you what, what do you do? I think it's very important to um, have in the back of your mind that. It's not your movie. Uh, for instance, the movie that I I just did, uh, Troll. Uh, it's it was something that the director he's been having this idea for this movie since you since he was uh, twelve years old or something. And you're you're just uh, you're there uh, at the, just the very very end of the process. Uh, so. Um, you have to come up with something that the director is on board with. So uh, that's usually that's the way I start, and then we uh, talk and uh, see um, what what does he want to accomplish? What does this movie needs? Um, what kind of movie is this? What um, does it is it similar to some other movies? And uh, so I just try to gather as much information as possible at the beginning of the project, and then I go back to the drawing board. Uh, and um, I like to sort of create a, a sound world. That's usually where I um, begin. So um, sometimes it's fairly obvious because uh, if if the director says that uh, this is going to be orchestral and that's it, then it's really uh, that that's where you start. Then you go strictly. You go go you go right to uh, harmony melodies, themes, and so on and so forth. But if it's a sort of a more of a different thing, uh, he's open, or he or her, uh, is open to suggestions. Um, 
um, then it's uh, more like if, if trying to find something new um, and then make some sketches and uh, sit there with the director and do you like this? Could this be a part of your movie? Uh, where could could this be a theme for? Uh, could this be a theme for a character? Uh, do you, does this movie need ca- themes for the characters? Uh, so it's really just as much about the movie as it's about the music. I love that. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point to start. Obviously, because yeah, if you don't have those important conversations with people ahead of time, then you could put yourself in a completely wrong direction. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you bring up the idea of like making themes for characters too, because that's something that I, I don't think that a lot of people think about, right? They just kind of think of this like underpad of music that it just is there. But you know, when you do create something specific for a character, then that that can really change a lot of the scenes as as the movie goes on with that specific character, that kind of thing. So it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and there, there's there's an, an, uh, there there are more aspects to it because uh, it makes the conversation about music a lot easier because if you've sort of like going in, if you've gone with a with a character theme direction, uh, you're on the same page. Like if when to use the character theme. Mm-hmm. If if you don't have that framework, like every scene is sort of new, so you have to have that con- conversation for for every for every scene. So um, it can really help to be a sort of like a creative uh, framework and makes just the process a bit easier. Uh, on the other hand, like the, the like if, if you uh, do the the character theme uh, the thing, it, it can also be a little old school in a way you know like in star wars uh so sometimes the director might say ah this is too on the nose like every time we see this character why 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 do we need the team the theme uh so yeah it, it i guess it really depends on the movie I imagine that understanding where not to have music is also an important element of the process too, because you know you don't want to just fill the entire movie with music. Because sometimes there's power in having dead air, or, you know, not dead air because there's obviously dialogue there, but you know, there's power in not having music as well. Um, so, is that something that you're also working with the directors to figure out, like which scenes should we leave kind of bare and which ones should we fill with music? Yeah, for sure. Um... That's something um, we normally do when we have a final cut uh, of the movie. Uh, we have something that's called a spotting session where we go through the movie and we discuss it, like where to put music, where to not put music, and what kind of music uh, are we putting uh, in those spots. Uh, but it's normally, like, like for for me personally it's so much better if we can start writing music uh, before uh, they start editing so when you get the final cut there's there's music in there um that you have written and you're you're sort of like informing the whole um the whole vibe of the movie uh, of of the soundtrack um like the, the nightmare is when you get there and um, the director, he has found all his favorites from his uh, score collection. So there's uh, music from Star Wars there, and there's some uh, Hans Zimmer and uh, all those guys, and it's his favorites. <laughs> and uh, and then uh, it's up to you to sort of like, uh, how can you beat that? It's, it's not possible. So... Uh, uh, it's always nice to, to start early in the process and... Um, 
and uh, it, it makes the job easier to uh, of course because some of it is all, all already written and the post production phase it's it's always time crunch but but yes if, if it's really important not to overuse music uh, that's if it if it's better without music uh, it, it most certainly is better without music so to speak yeah i imagine that um dealing with like those kind of temporary scores can be can be quite nerve-wracking. I, I'm one of my early mentors. He got to work on the score for the Passion of the Christ soundtrack, and I remember him telling me that you know they for for years they were battling the temporary score because you know someone had come yeah. in and was like, "We need this Peter Gabriel track." You know, this is what we've been listening to this whole time, and then ultimately they just got Peter Gabriel to do it. I think you know because oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like they had been composing for years and years, but the guy was just like, "No, this is like what I'm used to hearing." So I guess it just makes sense to. Get the you know get the money and figure it out and make it happen so we can get Peter Gabriel to do it you know that kind of thing. But yeah, I imagine that like you know when you're when you have a, a temporary score to go off of, you know it, it can probably create some sort of element of like imposter syndrome as well because now you're you know you're you're comparing yourself to you know often often music that has been highly revered for for years for other movies that you know the music was part of and that kind of thing. So um, how how does that come into play for you like how do you battle with that imposter syndrome and and you know trying to compete against you know maybe some of these other big score score writers that have maybe set a high precedent for you to write against uh, well the the thing is uh directors they normally like to make something unique and that's something i always try to do so that that is sort of the the the, the thing you have that you can do differently like if you've decided um, with the director a, a sound world, so to speak. There's always this element of like, let's let's take the what you like about this track. Uh, you like that it hits certain points. You like that it, the arrangement is big here. You like that something is changing here and make it our own. That that is that is something. Uh, if if you have the director on board with that thought of doing let, let's make our own thing and it can help a lot mm -hmm. but there's always this one track that is people have been listening to for uh months that's like so hard <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it, it, it even has a name like the temp love syndrome so that's when they are so emotionally attached to the temp track it's uh yeah yeah, yeah, I definitely could see how that would be a big challenge there. Because yeah, you're you're right. Like, you know, these people have been listening to it over and over again, and um, you know, I imagine that a lot of times the rough cuts of the movie have also been edited to this music as well, so that you know, it just it kind of already matches. So it's it's hard to recreate stuff like that. Um, yeah. So I'm curious to also know about that. Um, you know how how does the visual element of the film? influence the styles of music that you're making or how does it influence your writing like are you um when you watch these blank blank slates you know you're watching the you're, you're watching the film how are you using the visual to guide the music that you're writing oh that's a really good question honestly i like to get uh, in the beginning of the project when they start shooting i like just to see something just to get sort of like to get their visual uh their vision for the for the for the movie that that we're making, 
then I try not to think as much about the visual side of things because you get so like Mike, you get so detailed into things. So I try to save the the, the going the the, the micro management uh, kind of thing uh, until later. On at the spotting session, we we discuss where what, where should the music uh, change the arrangement and everything. But but for the big picture, uh, the visual style is very important, uh, and it can be a huge inspiration just to see something from the from the set and um, yeah. Are you factoring in things like, um, you know, the the visual cuts? Are the, is that influencing like your tempos and that sort of thing? Absolutely, but this is later in the process. That that's when we were closer to a final cut. You know, when we're at that stage, when we're at the spotting session, and if it's you have some of your music in there, um, some of it is good as it is. It's like you, you just need to do some tiny adjustments. And sometimes you need to just uh, make everything from scratch, mm. and then I just try to get a feel for the for the pacing, and uh, I just go with what feels right and hope that the director is on board with it. <laughs> of course, yeah. I would imagine too that in these spotting sessions, you're also starting to realize, you know, where where things like dialogue or voiceovers kind of sit, and maybe that's influencing what's going on in the in the audio as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, that, that's that's. I'm glad you're bringing that up because that's that's the most important thing. Um, on the soundtrack, uh, the, the score is just one out of three elements. It's it's the dialogue, as as you say, and there are the effects, the sound effects, the, the explosions, the the the, the, cl- the the sound of the clothes, uh, and then there's the music. And the dialogue is always king. If you try to write. Uh, very complicated music under dialogue it either will they will just turn it down so you can barely hear it or they will just uh, take it out completely so uh, the trick here is um, when, when when you're writing to picture um, it's a little bit like uh, making a record you know the 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 vocal is, is that's the main element of uh, and the vocal is already there. That's the dialogue. So you you try to make things fit with the dialogue. So like frequency wise, you you're not putting in snares under. Uh, it's very rare that there are snare sounds uh, under dialogue. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, you 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 just have to. You, you'll always lose against the dialogue. So you just have to embrace it. That makes sense. So I'd almost imagine that like. When you're writing, do you find that you try to generally start with a very minimal kind of arrangement to start, and then and then you pepper in other stuff later on after you've seen the the final cut, or you kind of work backwards where you like populate everything, make it busy, but then you know you, you learn what to take away in certain sections. I guess what I do when watching a scene, um, I get a very a pretty clear picture of what it needs. And what sort of arrangement is this going to be loud? Is it going to be soft? Is it going to be dense, densely orchestrated? Is it going to be like minimal? Um, so I, I just go from from what feels right, really. Makes sense. And um, you also kind of brought up uh, sound effects as well, and how that can influence 
the the arrangement as well. Like, you know, I I would imagine if you have big explosions, you kind of want to time that with the music a little bit. And so I I could definitely see that, like, you know, these screenings where you get to watch the cuts, like that would definitely change your music because you're, you know, you're now trying to fit these other sound effects around what your music is doing. So, um, seems like one of the big themes that you're, that you keep bringing up here is like adaptability and you just have to be willing to change and not be married to your music with this stuff. Oh, for sure. It's, it's so, uh, important not to be too precious about the music because it will all, it's, it's competing against, against dialogue. It's, it's, uh, in a way, so, uh, it, it'll definitely sound different than than it's doing when you when you're sitting and working on it, and you you get to the to the screening, and uh, yeah, it, it's definitely a a, a a different experience. You just have to sort of uh, be happy for that, like in the greater scheme of things, it it makes a it, it's a better movie. So yeah, so it's when I'm writing, it's. it's I always have to keep in mind that there's going to be uh, sound effects as well. So I, I try to have that in the back of my head while writing. Uh, a very like sort of a very common thing to do like when you're starting out is that um, if there's an explosion to just like go full uh, full on orchestra just to make an impact. But uh, at the end of the day, it's probably better to just take it out and let the sound effects do its thing. Of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think that that's a really important kind of conversation to to bring up is this idea of, you know, being um, being adaptable with the music and not taking it so personally when, you know, someone asks you to change things up because it can be hard, right? Obviously, you're you're making this music. This is like your baby to some degree, but but you're making your baby work with someone else's baby and as far as the film goes. So, you know, there's there's got to be that balance of like, you know, how, how much pride do you take in what you've done versus like, what's the bigger picture and how, we're, you know, how's this collaboration working? For sure. And the way I think about it, the, uh, the, the director and the producer and the writer, they've been working on this for so long. And you're, you're just, you're coming in at the very end of the project and um, they know more than do you do about the project. A lot of the times, I, I think uh, they're right, and I'm I'm not thinking from a sort of like the, the client is always right kind of perspective, but they know so much more and they have the vision. So um, if they think that it's better to to, to have the, the the sound effects sort of uh, drive the scene instead of the music, more often than not, it's it it, it is so in my in my experience. No, but that makes sense because, you know, these directors, although they may not be the musicians themselves, they they've watched films. They know how music plays a role in films. And so when they're making a scene, they've already got it in their mind of like the music's probably going to do something like this. And, you know, they're they're making all of their decisions based on a, a combination of elements, you know, the visual, the audio, all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, when they come to you and they're just like hoping for you as the expert to kind of have the same vision, you know, share that vision or be able to at least make their vision come to life. So, um, yeah, you would certainly have to be pretty flexible and and not married to your own work and, you know, be like, oh, this can't change because I wrote it this way, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So, yeah, it makes, <laughs> makes a lot of sense. No, th- th- this is something I'm, I'm really happy uh, with. Uh, I 
I lived in LA for uh, a couple of years. So I was lucky enough to work on these big movies and to see that even like the top guys up there, they get notes, they get pieces torn apart. Uh, it's, it's, it's a part of the job. It's, it's not like the big guys, they, they just do one version of things and uh, the, 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 this is how I do it and call it the day. It's not like that at all. That's that's good. To, that was a good thing to, to just to realize. Yeah, that's that's definitely very helpful to realize because yeah, often you have that idea of like the top people are just so good at what they do that they never have to fix anything. But you know, once you realize like, okay, wait a minute, they're human too, and this is just the process. Like we all yeah, go through these sure. changes. Then yeah, that definitely makes the uh, the load a little bit easier for yourself to to deal with. Um, I'd love to talk about like writer's block because. I'm assuming I'm assuming that that's something that must come up in your experience, and you know, there's probably times where you're looking at a screen and you're like, "What do I do with this?" So, how do you tend to deal with writer's block? Well, um, oh, that's a that's a really good question. I don't think of writer's block as something. Uh, in, in a way, I think of it that it doesn't exist. Like first and foremost, like you're there to. Uh, Filmmaking, it's, it's a huge collaborative um, effort and um, no other departments, they can sort of wait for you to give, be inspired. And it's not like, guys, I have to go uh, two weeks uh, away because I'm not feeling inspired. So you develop these tools and techniques um, that are really helpful. Um, for me, it's, you know, I think part of it is that uh, when you're sitting there, um, you're comparing your work with the best work out there. I mean, you're sitting there with the piano, and you're comparing it to the fully like fully recorded piece of the best film music in the world. Are you are you talking about like the temporary tracks that they put in at this point? Uh, the temp track, or uh, maybe some some other track that are just like really awesome because we, we want to be awesome uh of course like we want to do the best work we can um everyone wants to do that and um you, you just have to get it out there so you have at least something it doesn't have to be good and then you can sort of improve uh improve it later uh that that's that's at least something i found really worthwhile um sort of convince yourself it's not that important because if if you if you have like this this blank page hours go by and all you're looking at is a blank page you you, you have nothing but if you have some like simple stuff at least something you have somewhere to go like i i can't remember who said this but um why not go for uh, the first lousy id mm. instead of the second lousy id uh, so, so it's all about like developing something. Uh, that that that's uh, at least that's an advice that um, I found really really helpful. Did that? Did it make sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it definitely makes sense. And and you know, I, I like what you the point that you brought up there that you know the the industry doesn't wait for writer's block. Like, it's not like, you know, they're, they're expecting it and just like, you know, are accepting of it. It's like, no, you have to provide, they hired you for something. So, you know, give us, give us some sort of audio. Um, yeah. So you do have to find ways to 
make yourself prolific and, and to write and just, you know, whether it's a bad idea or not, you just have to get something out and, uh, and get, get the ball rolling. Yeah. I have to add though that, that the goal is obviously to make great music. Of course. But like in the process of making it, it's not helpful to have this sort of like in the back of your head, like this has to be awesome. So you have to sort of like trick yourself into that. It, it, this, it's not that important because at least you have something and then you can work on it. And even like the best pieces started out with something really simple, right? So uh, hopefully by, by the end of the, the process, you've created something uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's really important to have this kind of conversation because even people listening to this, if if they're not trying to get into composing, but they're just writing music. Like I know a lot of musicians who are just like writing the rock songs or whatever, but when they sit behind a guitar and they just hit that that wall where they're like, I can't write, they'll just abandon the idea of it. And like they'll go months without writing an idea just because they're waiting for motivation to to kick in or inspiration. But you know, I like what you've done here where you're just like, no, like I have found ways to inspire me and, you know, I'll listen to another track and maybe kind of get influenced by that and inspire me to write like some sort of starting point And then you just go from there. And I think right. that that's a really good habit for people to get into is just like forcing yourself into this creative process and, you know, just exploring things. And yeah, and maybe, sure. Maybe it isn't a great idea. Maybe you write a hundred awful songs, but then you write one that's really, really good. And that one changes yeah. your life, you know? Uh, it, it can happen. And I've certainly seen it in my own circle of friends. Like uh, so one of my old roommates, he, I remember his band, like they were challenged by their label. It was like, you need to submit a song a week, like done done song per week. And they wrote a lot of songs that weren't quite hit material along the way. Yeah. But they did it. And then finally, like, he ended up. He eventually ended up going on to write that that big chain smoker song closer. So it's oh, like fantastic. All that practice along the way eventually resulted in something that worked, right? So I share that story because I think that you know you have to um, you have to push yourself to just try to find inspiration in places and you know get get over that writer's block because otherwise you're not doing yourself any good. You're not doing any no. favors. So yeah, uh, I I have to say that in a way I feel that I'm cheating though because I have a deadline. And I rem- I remember this from when I was doing like playing in bands. It's so much harder when you don't have like uh, when you don't have like a hard deadline. So it's really nice what the what the record com- label did. Like they they forced them to write songs. And so it was a fantastic move, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like <laughs> no one wants to have that kind of uh, that pressure, but sometimes yeah. it ends up doing a lot of good, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's. Uh, Working with deadlines is definitely a, a really good thing, and um, yeah, even if you're just your musician and you don't have a label or something like that, it's like just give yourself a release date or something like yeah. that. You know, like put that pressure on yourself of a deadline, and it's going to force you to write. Oh um, yeah, for yeah. sure. Now, now speaking of deadlines, when it comes to creating these scores, like how what kind of deadlines are you typically looking at? Like for for turnaround times on these on these songs and these rough versions of of tracks, like. What does that timeline usually look like for you? Oh, that that really depends. It can be uh, a typical uh, a film score. It can take anywhere from five weeks to a year. Um, five weeks, that's not good for your health. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, That's pretty rough. That's 12-hour uh, days, 14-hour days. 
for a long period of time and not something I'd uh, recommend. Yeah, so so um, it can be anything really. But as far as average turnaround time, is five weeks pretty common? Because I, I would assume that, you know, to make these large scores, you would typically need a lot longer of a period of time to, to you know, write like 80 minutes worth of music or that kind of thing, right? So is five weeks typical? No. I think five weeks. That that's uh, yeah. That's I need more time than that. I I think I uh, that five weeks. That's just rushing through. Yeah. And for a five week project, would that be something where it's like typically like a whole score, or is it just like maybe one chunk of the movie, like you know one? Uh, no, scene no like you know it, 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 it's so uh, different from movie to movie. Uh, it could be if there's a there's a the movie Troll that I just did, I think there's like, um, how many minutes of music? 84 minutes of music. And you could do a drama where there's 25 minutes of easy piano, ambient kind of uh, music. So, so there are no hard and fast rules, really, that it's all over the place. But um, I'd say like a couple of months that's uh, I think that's that's a sweet spot for, for, for doing a movie. Yeah. Would that be from start to finish or would that be from like just presenting your idea of like, here's, here's my rough score, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's from start to finish. Gotcha. Like I'd love to have more time than that, but uh, yeah, three months, that's sort of like ballpark what I need. Yeah. So yeah. So that is making you work pretty quickly. Then you would have lots of tight deadlines because you know, 84 minutes of music, that's not just one song. You're, you're presumably working on like, you know, maybe 20 different cues or something like that throughout a track. So, uh, throughout a, throughout a film. So yeah, I mean, you'd have to be turning around music pretty quickly. I would assume just, you know, on a scene per scene basis. Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's super important that you, as we discussed earlier, that you have sort of like a sound world, so you don't have to think of it as a as a concept album. Uh, I, I guess like now it's all about singles and releasing singles. But those old concept albums where you have uh, where the movie is the concept, so that makes it a lot easier to write quickly because you don't have to like come up with new sounds for every cue. Um, because you're you're creating a world. You're you're creating a universe, and you want the audience to sort of be in that uh, universe. So, to to sort of like be in the same um, framework, so to speak, it it really it's really beneficial for the movie. You can, you can't like do one thing uh, and and change completely on the next cue. It, it would just not work. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you, you've got a lot more like recurring themes that are coming through throughout a whole. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, are you kind of like working off of templates? Then, like, once you've got that kind of rough soundscape, are you then working off of a template that just allows yeah. you to get up and running pretty quickly? Templates uh, are super important. I make one for uh, every project, so I have a sort of like a a baseline um, for the movie. And then uh, there might be something missing for uh, from queue to queue, so I just add one track or two tracks uh, on a as needed basis. And uh, yeah, it's it's so important because when you deliver things, um, everything is delivered in stems, so they have uh, the possibility to mute and take things out and uh, adjust things. So um, 
And I remember uh, when I started out, they uh, I, I've been there where I've like soloed one track, uh, hit bounce, soloed the next track, and but now it's just like basically hitting one button and everything is done automatically. So that's that's a huge time saver. Yeah, that's interesting because yeah, when you I would assume you'd almost have to be very creative with the way you part out your stems so that things can be removed, but you're not losing. The, the main foundation of the song, right? Like, yeah. Oh, for sure. That's where the precious uh, about your work comes in again. Yeah. A stem might be muted, and it was like, well, what, what, what's hap- what happened with my music? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then as far as, as um, those stems that you would export for somebody, what kind of stems are you typically doing? Is it, is it usually just like, like rhythm and then like, you know, strings or like, what, what, what do those stems typically look like? When I work on these uh, bigger movies, uh, everything gets mixed by uh, a mixer. So I export all the tracks individually, and he sort of like folds it down into stems. Gotcha. Um, and I, I'd say the most important thing to have a separate stem for are the hits, uh, like the impacts. Uh, like the the drums, um, and there's usually a, a, a stem for the orchestra, uh, a stem for uh, pianos and harps and bells. That's often a, like one stem. Sometimes we we do uh, st- w- w- what's referred to as striping at the recording session. So instead of playing the orchestra all together, we we uh, do it like. Uh, we have the long strings, the legato strings on one track, and we have the short strings on another. So that gives it even more flexibility at uh, when when everything gets because it in a way it gets mixed two times. First, I'm mixing it, and then the mixing engineer mixes it, and then it's mixed at the dubbing stage. That's sort of like when everything comes together, and in the mixing theater um, by the, the 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 re-recording mixer. So uh, yeah, a lot can happen uh, on the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like, yeah, you definitely have to be very. Um, you can't take things personally if if stuff gets removed because there's so many people, so many cooks in the kitchen, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I I have to say that um, everyone is doing what they can to make the best movie possible. So it happens a lot of times that I think that. Wow, this is so much better than what I did. They they actually made this scene much better. Uh, I didn't think of this because they did some tweak to one of my stems. So a lot of the times, I when you're working with great people, they they make it better than it, it was originally. For sure. Well, and also you, you know once you see it all kind of come together, it definitely makes it uh, work better. You know, like it, it just yeah. It, it it's in the end, it, it's kind of meant to be the way it is because it it you know, gives you the best arrangement of all of the different elements, visual and audio and sound effects and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that's a very, that's a very, uh, that's a very nice moment when everything melts together. And uh, so, so everything in a way becomes transparent. It's just, that, that's a, that's a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've got a bit of a loaded question here for you, but um, I'd love to talk about creating emotion through music because ultimately yeah. that's what, that's what film scores are supposed to do. They're supposed to, you know, provide a sense of, you know, sometimes it's giving you anxiety or sometimes it's happiness or whatever, you know, you're, you're provoking a feeling through your music. And I think 
whether you're doing film scoring or someone who's listening to this is only working on like rock music or whatever, you're still trying to create a connection with your audience and your song. So how, what are some of your tips for creating emotion through music? Minor key is sad, major key is happy. <laughs> that's, that's a 101 uh, kind of. No, uh, oh, that's a really, really good question. Oh, it's, uh, um, yeah. You know, uh, um, I, I feel that film scoring has changed quite a bit over the years. It's, uh, if you're too, like, if you're too sad, the music is too sad or it's too happy, in a way, it's, it has been more like ambiguous. In a way, uh, at least that's how I feel. Um, if I present something like a really sad uh, uh, cue to a director, I might get the feedback that this is a little bit too on the nose, at, at least for the movies that I'm doing. So, so it's and and you 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 can't push harder than the than than the storyline like if if it if you put on like super sad music and it's not really sad it's just like feeling like a, it's this comedy or uh so i i guess it's a, it's a balancing act you just um how much can i can i push it in in each direction and uh, going back to the, the what, what I jokingly said uh, about major keys and, and minor keys, but there's some truth in that. That's a sort of like the really, really basic start. Uh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I think that that's, uh, that's probably, like you said, like kind of like one of those 101 theory things that, you know, people always discuss. Um, yeah. But what about, <laughs> what about things like, what about things like key? Or, or sorry, like the obviously major or minor, but like the actual key key themselves. Like, do you find that like certain um, certain scales or whatever are better for certain styles of music or or certain tempos, that kind of thing? Oh, that's a fantastic question, and it's a good one. If you're asking if uh, D minor and C minor, if they are uh, very different emotions, I'd say no. Uh, but uh, oh, th- this has been discussed so much. Like, if the root key, like if uh, if, if the if the minor keys of two two different root notes, do they feel very differ- differently? Uh, my take on that is is no. I I I, I feel that it, it's much of the same emotion. But um, when working with the orchestra, there's if you need a lot of weight, there are certain keys that are better. Uh, for for instance, like the 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 contrabasses, they go down to a C. So if you if you're writing in B, that means that you can't go as low. Mm. If that makes sense. Yep. Because then the the basses have to go one octave up. That makes sense. Yep. So um, so so uh, that's at least one uh, consideration. To um, so if if I'm doing action cues, uh, C, D, E, like so, you're getting really down there. Or good keys for that. If you think like more modal, like you have the Lydian scale that evokes certain emotions. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that to go off from a scale, that that's a good way to start a cue. 
Well, what, what, what is it in Spinal Tap? They say D minor is the saddest, saddest chord of all or saddest scale yeah, of yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> what about, I'm assuming things like tempo also comes into play as well, that like maybe faster tempos are more for high energy scenes. and. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. That kind of thing. Yeah, so uh, 147, that's a good action uh, tempo. <laughs> so, so you have turtle you have you start to develop these so some some go-tos and uh but but at, at, at the end of the day it it's it's more like every scene is different and you just have to, you just have to feel what, what what's right gotcha that makes sense but, yep. but, but it's it's just really good to have some starting points though yeah that makes sense and especially the more you've done the more you do this the more you have that kind of um that experience that will tell you, you know, like 147 or whatever is, is a great tempo for action. And, you know, maybe like 120 is more of like a jogging pace or that kind of thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so once, once you know those kind of things, then, um, you know, you can definitely play play to those strengths for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, last question I want to ask you is that I know some, there's a lot of people that are listening to this who are probably feeling inspired by everything you've talked about here and are thinking for themselves, like, I would love to get into composing and working in film and that kind of stuff. So what's the best way for someone to get into composing professionally? And how, do, how does someone break into this industry? I think uh, the short answer to that is to just do it. To find uh, friends, uh, people you know, uh, maybe, they, maybe you have someone you know at, at the film school, uh, reach out, uh, there are a lot of films that are being made um, like on, a, on, a, on smaller budgets, uh, and uh, a lot of the 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 directors that I'm working on uh, working with to this day is started off like with pretty small movies. So so it's it's about uh, doing it and building relationships and um, get as much practice as as you as you can really. Yeah, and then and just getting in with like film students and stuff like that. Like that's probably the, one of the best ways to get get started and getting your music out there, that kind of thing? Yeah, I, uh, definitely. I um, you, you can't just like call a producer and uh, say that you want to do like this <laughs> blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have certain certain track records. So that, I guess this is just the same as uh, as doing bands and uh, you're sort of like, you're, you're, you're building one, st- one stone at a time. Makes sense. Awesome. Well, Johannes, thank you so much for for sharing all of this information here today. I, I think that there's a lot to take from it, and people who I'm sure there's a lot of people who are unfamiliar with what goes into composing film and TV music, and you know, to hear a little bit about your process and you know how flexible you have to be with it throughout the whole process. I think I think it's really important for people to know, and um, even for the people who aren't listening to this coming from it as as wanting to be composers like there's still a lot to learn about being adaptable and flexible here or you know um with everything you talked about as far as like getting over writer's block and stuff like that there's there's a lot of great lessons to learn here so so johannes thank you so much for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it uh, thanks so much for having me mike it's been so great to to talk to you uh thanks so that was my interview with Johannes Ringin, and I thought that was really interesting to learn about what goes on behind the scenes when it comes to creating film scores and how much flexibility there is. You know, I think it's really interesting that, you know, with digital technology these days, everyone is just making these like temporary scores using MIDI based instruments. And then, you know, they'll 
constantly be adjusting things. And then finally, they'll get to the stage where they re-record everything with real instruments. I thought that was really interesting. And um, it's kind of like pre-production, right? It's like really mapping out what your song should ultimately sound like in the end so that when you finally make it into the studio to record your song, you know exactly what you're going to do, what the arrangement's going to be like, you know, what instrumentation, all that kind of stuff. So it really is this cool kind of pre-production thing. And it's interesting to hear about it on a much larger scale for these big films. So um, really, really fascinating to, to learn more about that. And I thought that it was great to hear Johannes's approach to dealing with things like writer's block and, you know, how you just got to battle through it. And that's one thing that I've found with the few composers that we've had on the podcast is that composers that are doing this professionally, it's like, there's no time to waste. You can't, you can't have writer's block and you can't expect that people are going to be forgiving with it. So you need to find ways to create music and to get inspired. And when you create these little systems for yourself, it allows you to get up and running and maybe you don't have a hit right away or maybe you do, but you have to just get the ball rolling. And I think that that's something that whether you're into composing or you're just making music on your own, I think this is a really good practice to get into because the more you flex those muscles, the faster and better and stronger you get. So um, yeah, just great tips that Johanna shared here as far as getting up and running with your creativity. So I found that very inspirational. I hope that you did too. I hope you learned a lot of great stuff from that, especially if you're not familiar with the world of composing. And if you like this episode, make sure to smash that subscribe button. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. Saying smash that subscribe button sounds so like youtube right? But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. If you want to make sure that you get all the new episodes as they go live, definitely make sure to subscribe to this podcast. That way you don't miss out on any. We've got so many great episodes coming up ahead. So definitely make sure to do that. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking to get help with your mixes. If you're feeling stuck with your tracks and you're not sure what to do to make them sound better, Rather than letting them sit on your hard drives collecting digital dust, I'd love to help you out. So on the website, there are tons of great resources designed to help make the process of your music production so much easier. And one resource that I definitely want to point you to is a book called The Mixing Mindset. That is a book where I break down the process of mixing step-by-step so you know exactly what to do, what to be listening for, how to use the tools, how to dial in settings, all that kind of stuff so that you can get your ideas to come out of your head and out of your speakers. So definitely make sure to check that out. That's available at MasterYourMix.com. And if you're looking for even deeper training and you're looking for one-on-one mentorship so that you can get personalized feedback on your specific music, and you're looking for someone to help guide you throughout the entire process, that is something that I also offer as well. If you're interested in learning more about one-on-one coaching, send me an email. My email address is info at MasterYourMix.com and just simply include the word coaching. So once again, that's info at MasterYourMix.com and just include the word coaching and I'll get back to you and we'll talk about how I can help you out. So we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.